If you will turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 127. This is the second sermon on the 127th Psalm. It's on page 613, 613 of the Bibles in your pew. So last Sunday I preached on verses 1 through 3, uh, and this Sunday we'll, we'll give a brief overview of 1 through 3, mainly focusing on 4 and 5. But we will start this morning by reading from verse 1. Uh, Psalm 127. Unless Yahweh, unless the Lord, builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, look, see, children, are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. If you were here last Sunday, then you already have an inkling of some of the things I'm going to say, and I want to begin by saying that my encouragement to all of you, no matter your season in life, station in life, or how the Lord has, uh, has, has blessed you or not with regard to children, please hear me well, whether you are single or married, whether you are of marriable age or not, or whether you are an empty nester or a widow or a widower, and you're, or your children are moved out and, and maybe living far away and, and um, sort of having households of their own. Wherever you find yourself in whatever season, do not, please, be tempted to think that this sermon is not for you. We tend, I fear sometimes, I think sometimes, to, to think of sermons as sort of sanctified advice, where, where I draw up some verses and then try to, try to angle them in such a way as they, as they trans, transform into good advice for you. It's really not what a sermon is. Sermons are meant to be expositions, that is, um, if you like, unveilings or revealings of what God has said in His Word that we might say His words after Him, think His thoughts after Him. So in other words, a, a large part of the purpose of a sermon is not just information and application. That's, those are essential parts of a sermon. But beyond that, the purpose of preaching is that we would have our minds and habits and hearts conditioned by what the Word of God says. And you heard me say earlier that part of that is loving what God loves, valuing what God values, having our loves rightly ordered. And so whatever season of life you are in, I offer to you this morning that this sermon can help work that kind of good in your heart. That is, rightly ordering loves and, and, and saying with the Lord, yes, that which God calls good, I'm also going to call good and valuable and rejoice over it and so on. So the goal today is that we agree together and rejoice in what God calls good and in verse 5, what God calls blessed. And we want to prayerfully, prayerfully seek ways that we can make God's values and priorities to use our our modern language, our values and priorities. Now, I want to stress, I am not going to say everything that could be said. Well, that's obvious. I'm not going to even say everything I wanted to say uh, this morning on this particular text. So if you feel 
like I left some things on the table, it might be because I did, and maybe you and I should talk about that, okay? So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to assume, and by that I don't mean sort of everything that's in the, t- I mean addressing every situation as to how this text falls on your ears. I'm not going to hit every target there this morning. So let's get into it. Psalm 127 is about how God in his mercy builds stability into a people and a culture. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord is the one doing the building, the laborers, those who build it, labor in vain. And furthermore, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord is the one doing the defending and protecting, the watchman, the the guard at the gate, the security system in your house stays turned on in vain. This psalm is about how God builds a house. There's some metaphor there, and I think you could take it in a few different directions. But a house that is full of blessing, free from anxiety, verse 2, bread of anxious toil, and full of children. And in turn, those children pour back into the stability because they have an offensive quality like arrows and they have a defensive quality. Their father will not be ashamed when he speaks with his enemies at the gate, about about which we will say more in a moment. By way of reminder, the fundamental principle of the whole psalm is in verse 1. Can you put that one up, please? I think I've got it at a starting place, maybe after this. Yeah, we've gone through that already. And that one as well, sorry. Let's see. All right. Well, what, what I think what the next one is, is, is a reminder of the principle that we went over last Sunday. That is, if God blesses plans, if God's in the plan, so to speak, nothing can stop them. And if God does not, then nothing can sustain them. This is true of households. This is true of churches. This is true of nations. Okay. And last Sunday, we talked about the first two descriptors of children, heritage or, or inheritance, that's the first one, heritage, inheritance, and reward, okay? Those are economic terms meant to indicate blessing. Economic terms meant to indicate blessing. We talked about how the world often sees children mainly as a burden or a hindrance to accomplishing what you actually want to do. Like, like you have goals and dreams and good things and, and children are mostly a threat to those dreams. This is an altogether anti-biblical, anti-Christian way to think. Utterly opposed to, well, how, to how Solomon writes in this psalm. Now, let's get to verses 4 and 5. The next two images here, our first, our, our first terms were, again, uh, inheritance and reward. Our next two are more militant. Arrows in the hand of a warrior. And then in verse 5, like, like a pride of lions at the gate. And th- wh- where do I get that from? That's, uh, that's a word play that I made up in English, okay? And so I'm asking you to indulge me a bit because it says he will not be ashamed. So what's the opposite of shame? Well, the opposite of shame is pride. And, and this image of, of, of a father at the gates with his children behind him, I'm almost thinking like a pride of lions and the sort of defensive power there is in that group. And I'll say more about that in a moment. This is why I said that the traditional family, and when we speak of the, the sort of Western traditional family, is different, a bit different from the biblical family. The traditional family sometimes, at least the way it's kind of its image is exported, is like a, is like a boarding school 
right, of, of happy little children. Everyone's happy and smiling all the time. I like the sort of, sort of coming downstairs in the line, like, what is it, Von Trapps, I think it is, uh, and, and having the smile glued on their face, and they'd better stay that way or else. The biblical family is more like a platoon. It's far more militant. It's an integral part of how God builds his kingdom. See, the traditional family says that we're going to make the world jealous of how clean-cut and well-behaved and respectable we are. The biblical family says the world won't know what hit them when we find them. The world will get mad when it discovers that it can't mock us out of our faith in God. We will not cover in a foxhole hoping the world leaves us alone. We and our children will get launched out like arrows and send the hordes of hell screaming. Now, oh, I was hoping I was going to get an amen on that one. I even have in my notes, wait for the amen. Here's why. Because that evokes an amen in your heart, just like it evokes an amen in mine. That's why I put it in my notes. But is that how we disciple? Is that how we talk? Is that how we preach? Is that how we do church? Or are we usually and mostly a defensive posture, afraid of what's going to come next? Our God continues to build His kingdom in this world, making war against His enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and bringing battering rams against the gates of hell, and drawing all the nations unto Himself. What this psalm shows us is that in God's plan of doing all that, fruitful households are one of His most potent weapons. I say weapons so you understand this is not a sugary, sweet, sentimental psalm about the laughs and smiles of babies, which are great, by the way, okay? Baby smiles and baby laughs are fantastic. But Psalm 127 pictures children at least as warriors in training. I know the, me- the metaphor is arrows, but arrows in the hands of a warrior. Now, I want to first note that they are arrows in Hands, okay? So I'm not making that up. That's in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Youth because, I mean, frankly, I, I'm convinced that's sort of a, um, a kind of an obvious mathematical structure of blessing. If you have a lot of kids, when you're on the younger end, they're going to grow up and be able to take care of you when you're on the older end, Okay. So, <laughs> right, and, and all the parents, uh, all the empty nesters said amen, right. And so like her- arrows in the hand of a warrior then, and as parents, most of you know this, I'm just going to say it anyway so the ground is covered. The training of your children in the things of God is your responsibility, okay? Think Deuteronomy 6, right? You're going you're gonna to tell these things to your children when you sit at your table and walk in the way and so on. The training up of your children is your responsibility given to you by God. Not primarily mine, not primarily the state's, not primarily anyone but yours. This does not change when they reach 13. When they hit 13, they do not suddenly become Parker's responsibility exclusively. They are still yours. Now, it is interesting that the language used here, again, arrows in hands, not arrows on the bowstring. Arrows in hands. Okay? So that they're not not ready to fire just yet. Now, I mean, I don't want to read too much into that, but 
Just think about holding a bunch of arrows. You haven't put them on the bowstring yet, but you mean to. Until you do, they're mostly harmless. So it is with little children. Maybe they seem harmless now. When the time comes for them to step up to the work, they'll be a force to be reckoned with. A kindergarten class is a gaggle of future warriors. And yet, and yet, we do not believe, when we speak this way, we do not believe that it is an automatic blessing. Okay? And by automatic, I just mean, well, we've got kids, so it's time to sit back and do nothing and basically let them raise themselves because, you know, God says they're arrows and arrows shoot themselves, don't they? Hmm. Let's look at verse 1 again. Unless the Lord builds the house. Okay? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, excuse me, those who build it labor in vain. Okay? So we raise children, Christian moms and dads raise children in faith, asking God for his blessing and walking out, living out what he calls blessed. We believe God when he says that he will see faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And that he will visit iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who turn aside to idols. He has not promised faithfulness. Listen, he has not promised faithfulness across the generations to people who read the right parenting books or practice the right methods. Right? Just at a fundamental level, let's start with where we started in the pastoral prayer this morning. Love of God's Word. Okay? So let's apply this idea a little bit. The children are arrows. Okay? Children are arrows. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Alright. Now, before we go any further, I want to say very quickly that this sermon is not a defense of the so-called quiverful movement. Let's talk about this briefly. This movement sees every Christian family as being under a mandate to have as many children as possible. Basically, they say, here's the line of reasoning. Since children are a blessing, and that's the language of 127, okay, blessed is the man, verse 5. Since children are a blessing, you should therefore seek to fill your proverbial quiver, having as many of them as humanly possible, otherwise you're sinning. Now, Oh, where to start with that? That this was probably more or less the perspective of God's people when the psalm was written, and for most of God's people, for most of history, is probably fair enough, maybe without the intensity of, or otherwise you're sinning. That does not mean, however, that the quiverful movement is without its problems. They have all sorts of teachings, some of which have some biblical echoes, some of which get really weird really fast. Addressing the quiverful movement is not really the purpose of this sermon, so I'm just going to say quickly, I think and believe that there are times and circumstances where a Christian couple can decide together to wait to have children or any more children for a time and a season. This should not be done lightly. It should be done with counsel and help and prayer. It should not be done in a spirit of just wanting more material comfort or money or vacations or whatever else. Because that is the, that's the children as a hindrance rather than the children as an inheritance. And our ordinary orientation 
as Christians toward children is reward and heritage. Okay? To quote Matthew Henry, I think I might have it up there, children are a heritage and a reward and are so to be accounted blessings and not burdens. For he that sins mouths will send meat if we trust in him. <laughs> Isn't that great? For he who sins mouths will send meat if we trust in him. So, while I don't believe, while I don't believe that married Christians should be intentionally and perpetually childless, please hear the qualifiers there, I do think there are circumstances where fruitful families might consider not having more children for a time. And I am more than happy to talk with those families. There's the little advertisement for come and talk to your pastor if you have further questions. So, let's go back to the text. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of the warrior are the children of one's youth. Okay? Why are children called arrows? Number one, because they're a threat. <laughs> arrows are threatening. There is no more potent threat to the forces of darkness in this world than godly children who love Jesus and want to see his gospel preached to the nations. Okay? Raising godly children is perhaps the most radical weapon in our arsenal. We have largely stopped believing that. We have instead taught my generation, and so I'm, I'm speaking as just, again, uh, having lots of time, spent lots of time in a variety of Christian circles, what, what I heard not always actively, but, but I think passively, is that if you really want to be a radical Christian, you have to put off marriage for 10 or 20 years and, and get your education perfect and, and get yourself perfectly qualified to go be a missionary. And if you have kids, I mean, that's great and all. Be a good parent. Raise them right if that's your thing. But really, you need a lot of sort of adventure, excitement, and thrill for life to be meaningful. And everybody knows that marriage and children's pretty boring it's not exciting, it's not adventurous, it's diapers, <laughs> and it's tears, and it's late nights, and tight budgets, and it doesn't afford a lot of opportunity to travel and have a life that makes others envious of what a free spirit you are. And slowly over time, I won't say like all of American evangelicalism, but I will say in some corners, okay? We built a whole culture that really privileged and sensationalized certain forms of ministry work as radical or, or authentic, super authentic kingdom missional work. And marriage and children was either next to that or beneath it. Okay? Or not a part of it at all. Now, oh, oh man, this, is, this could be like called the sermon of, of qualifiers because they're all over the place. It does seem that some, by apostolic directive, Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, that some people are called to a life of celibate chastity for the sake of ministry. But please note I said celibate chastity, not singleness. Singleness is a word we invented in the last few decades, and it either means a really lonely person or a person who lives for themselves or something in between. There is no gift of singleness in the Bible. That's not a thing. The Apostle Paul never talks about a gift of singleness. He says that some are supernaturally gifted to practice celibate chastity. That is a disciplined life of service and godliness without the attachments and responsibilities of marriage. And, I submit to you, without a great deal of struggle with lust or loneliness, which the great overwhelming majority of Christians do not seem to be called to. 
So some of you young people really need to hear me on this this morning. If you have some sort of like pornography addiction, you do not have the gift of celibacy, okay? We just need to go ahead and settle that one. Not now, probably not ever. If you sit around all day and long for the companionship of marriage or the calling of, of parenthood, being a mom or dad, you probably don't have the gift of celibacy. Don't think too hard about it. If you are, however, avoiding marriage, maybe because your parents had a bad marriage or maybe they had a bad divorce, maybe the idea of marriage and children really terrifies you, that also is not the gift of celibacy. Fear and terror are not gifts from God. So I, I want to be really clear here. Paul in Corinthians makes room for the possibility of what we might call a gift of celibacy. The whole reason he makes much of it, though, and goes on about it for a little while is because I would offer to you it's so rare that it requires a good deal of explanation and justification. But it's not non-existent in our body. And I think part of the task that is before us is that when someone in our midst is so gifted, oh man, to hold them up and pray for them. Right? To hold them up and pray for them. So, back to the psalm. You're going to hear, now you'll notice some of that was a wandering away from the psalm because as I was writing the sermon, there were just kind of, in my heart, too many sort of pastoral questions that came up that I really wanted to address as we walked through. I'll try to return to our, our text. You'll see as frequently as, as I can. So in our psalm, children are called arrows. Why? First reason is because they're a threat to the forces of darkness. My hope and prayer is that Grace Presbyterian Church more and more will be a place where our children make the forces of hell tremble with fear. Little ones, that's a calling that God has put on you. Children who love their Bibles, let's say who know how to talk about their faith. We have a word for that. We call it a catechism. Children who love to sing, who love to sing and worship God beside mom and dad at home as well as at church, who love mom and dad's faith and the way they live it out. Don't make your kids keep your sins a secret. Okay, mom and dad? Don't do it. Next reason why children are arrows, because they get shot out. <laughs> That's what you do with arrows, right? Parenthood is the task of preparing a little arrow to get shot out into the world. Not randomly like an archer with a blindfold on, okay? But intentionally, carefully, prayerfully, happily. And this is where mom and dad have got to be on the same page. Moms, for many of you, your temptation will be to keep that arrow behind a little shield all the time, all the time, and never launch it out. <laughs> uh, shields go up on a wall, you know. <laughs> They're very defensive. They'll stay at home and protect you all the time, but they, they won't go out into the world. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, by the way, that all children have a mission to move 500 miles away from home in order to go out into the world. That's a modern invention. Getting shot out into the world might look like going to college. It might not. Different plans are in front of different people. You do not need a college degree to acquire personhood. It might look like moving away from home. It might not. It might look like a trade school. It might not. It might look like becoming a missionary to a foreign land. It might look like leaving for training, perhaps, and then coming back. The options are numerous, but it does mean that when children are old enough and ready to bear the weight of the mission and the legacy and the heritage that they have been trained for and trained to inherit, 
that they do it with joy. So that means, mom and dad, when the time comes, what's that going to look like for you? Now, what I'm trying to get at here, I, I think sometimes it is the case. I, I want to be careful. Not all the time, not for everybody, but sometimes it is the case that we don't handle this question carefully. We say, well, you know, we, uh, we raised them up. We did our best. See you later, kid. <laughs> or at least that's a stereotype, perhaps. And you just shoot them out to wherever they feel like going. No, you don't. Let me illustrate with this. When it is time, for example, to think about college, if your kid's going to college, what sort of questions do you ask? Here are the standard questions, right? What's the, what are the programs like? What are the opportunities like? What, what's the class size? What's the graduation rate? What's the cost, of course? What about, is there a Bible-believing, creed-confessing, gospel-loving, arrow-sharpening church within spitting distance? Has that question ever been asked? Or how about, how committed is this particular institution to absolutely brainwashing my kid in the latest propaganda? It's worth asking the question, beloved, and going through answers with your kid. I mean, the world's most godless institutions of higher education are quite happy to let us complain all day about how bad they've gotten so long as we keep paying them to retrain and dull our arrows. Children are arrows because they're being sharpened for the day when they'll be shot out into the world, that all hell may tremble when they hear the sound of your bow releasing that arrow. Now, let's go to verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We've talked about that. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. I said, think of this as a pride, opposite of shame, like a pride of lions, which is a liberty I'm taking because it's a play on words in English that doesn't work in Hebrew. But here's what I want you to notice. First, the children are at the gates. We think of city gates maybe, okay, that's where the entrance is, that's where the exit is. That's not wrong, but you're missing the big picture. The gates is where you found the city council. In modern terminology, the city gates were like the courthouse and the chamber of commerce. It's where the city elders and judges could be found if they needed to settle a dispute. It is where decisions were made, where civil complaints were brought, where major financial transactions were conducted, and so on. And if there was some sort of like showdown, think of like Wild West, where the showdown was in the town square at high noon, right? That would be at the city gates. So what you should picture here, what Solomon is singing about in this psalm, is that this man has arrows in his quiver. His enemies come to cause him trouble. They come to make life uncomfortable for him. They come to clown around and start trouble. Maybe they show up even to threaten him with something like a lawsuit. And he shows up at high noon or whatever time they give him with six of his great big strapping 200-pound boys behind him. He walks up to the clowns causing trouble and says, Can we help you? That's a dispute that's going to be over very quickly. The point is, the point is, that when the threat comes, this man's sons, this man's children, sons or daughters, are with him. They're beside him. They're on his side. They're for his cause. They, they know their father's proven himself to be a man, for example, who's not violent or aggressive for the sake of violence or aggression. He doesn't start fights, but he does finish them with honor, and they're on his side. In other words, there's a, there's a family unity going on here. 
a glue that holds this family together. They're engaged together in the same mission. This man and his sons are not, are not sort of, I mean, let's, let's assume he's got six kids. This man and his six kids, it's not seven different directions happening, wildly different pursuits and wildly different goals. They might have various vocations and so on, but they're united under the banner of a sense of family honor and mission together. Also, they trust the cause of their father. When dad goes to the gates to deal with these clowns, his kids go with him because they assume if dad's being challenged, he's probably on the right side of things. History's proven that out. That when he decides to do something, it's because it's the right thing to do. Now, we got some pastoral stuff to sort out from all that, okay? <laughs> Let's talk about this idea for a moment. The most obvious pastoral problem from this text is like, what if that just doesn't describe my situation? What do I do? What if my kids aren't on my side? Okay. What, what do I do and how do I sort that out? And you probably knew I was going to bring it up at some point. Can you go to our next text, please, Jeremiah? Uh, nope, that's okay. Proverbs 22 is the one I'm looking for. Proverbs 22, verse 6. And this, is, by the way, is not Jeremiah's fault. I'm realizing that the way I put some of this material in is different from the way it's showing up in my notes. So he is doing his best to deal with me. But Proverbs 22, 6, you've heard it before. You probably haven't memorized. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it, right? We all know that one. Now, there are two ditches. Thank you, sir. There are two ditches we can fall into here. And I want to warn you about either one, okay? First one we've already talked about, which is do the right methods, follow the right protocols, read the right books, and you'll get the right kid, okay? This is arrogance. That's the word for this, for this ditch, is the ditch of arrogance, Ditch number two, on the other side, goes something like this. Well, you know, that's a proverb, not a promise. The reality is you do your best and maybe you've got a 50-50 shot. Maybe your kid will turn out okay. Maybe not. Who can say, really? Kids these days, am I right? That's unbelief. This is not what covenant families are given to believe. So we have arrogance on one side and unbelief on the other, which means that parents... You need to be regularly confessing sin. When God tells you how to live as a husband or wife, as a mother or father, you say amen. When God, again, tells you how to rightly order loves in your home, what to love, what to value, how to speak, how to discipline, you say amen. Rather than, I bet I can find a book on marriage or parenting that'll get me out of obeying that verse. To go over the same point again, two significant lies, okay? One lie is about methods. Apply the right methods and you'll get the right kid. Just download the right methods into your house and all will be well. Go to the right conferences, get the right books, and we will just mechanistically crank out a faithful kid for you. And then the second lie is about passivity. Nothing you do matters. So don't read any books. <laughs> don't get any help or any counsel. Ignore what God has said and, and called good. Despise what God has called you to do. Ignore sin in your house and in your own heart. Sweep it under the rug. Don't ever talk about it. Cultivate or, or cultivate coldness. Be distrusting of gladness and joy. Refuse to repent out loud. And I mean, if, you're, if your kid walks away from faith, just, just throw up your hands and chalk it up to election because, you know, it's a proverb, not a promise. We need to be more careful than that. Okay? Once again, verse 1 is the glue of this whole thing. Unless the Lord builds 
the house. Those who labor build it in vain. Unless the Lord Jesus, who himself has claimed all the glory of Yahweh, before Abraham was, I am. Unless he is the builder. That, you know, that doesn't increase our laziness, right? Uh, only lazy men read sovereignty as an excuse to be lazy. Verse 1 does not say, unless the Lord builds the house, a house won't magically appear. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So do you see? We are hopeless without God's blessing. But with God's blessing, our labor is labor and it's not fruitless. Okay? So, so then, the next question we come to, also a struggle in many of your hearts, is where is God's blessing then? Probably the most troubling question of all. We've got these promises around our children. Okay, so we, we believe God gives promises to children of the covenant, then how do we account for the overwhelming apostasy that we see in our day? Among my generation and to some extent the one to come after me. Apostasy, by the way, is a, is a technical term. It means someone who had some form of faith at one time but then is, has given up on that. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, it's not up here, but he said, arrows in the hand can sometimes become arrows through the heart. I said, train up a child in the way he should go is neither an automatic vending machine nor a 50-50 clueless coin flip. So then what do we do? What do we do when our children are in the midst of professed unbelief? You are not going to like the first answer. All I can say to you is that it's only the first answer. Stay tuned for the other ones. First, you examine your heart and see if there are places where you need to repent. It's a hard thing to say because it sounds like I'm saying if your kid strays from faith, it's your fault. That's not what I said, but it's what some of you heard just now, but it's not what I said. I didn't say if your kid strays from faith, it must be entirely accountable and sort of subscribable. We write it up just to something you did wrong. No, but I did say that because you're a Christian, it's an opportunity for you to examine things and see if there might be a place where you can repent to your spouse and kids. I'm not saying it's the primary or sole factor in play. Please listen. I'm saying it's arrogance not to just consider your sin in the midst of things like this. And, and maybe you're saying right now, that's real easy for you to say, Brian, your kid is like five seconds old. So she is. Am I wrong though? I often preach things outside of my experience. If you need one of the other elders to say to you what I am saying to you, I will set up a phone call. To those of you with prodigal children, I am not saying that your unconfessed sin is the sole and obvious reason for a wayward child. And I am not saying plant yourself in a shame spiral for that for the next decade. I am saying that if there is unconfessed sin, anger, pride, lust, arrogance, despising authority, whatever else. Sometimes you just need to repent for the way that your sin is carried on. You might need to come to the Lord and say, I'm an angry person and I have an angry kid. I'm a bitter person and I have a bitter kid. I refuse correction or counsel and my kid's really hard to talk to. And if you do that, if you do that work in your own heart, if you do that Heart work, homework, and you come up with nothing? I, I'm not seeing any connection here, Pastor. Okay. Okay. You're free. 
Don't enslave yourself to a shame spiral from the enemy that will keep you busy for the next two or three years. Be free and pray hard. So what else? What else do I do? You said that wasn't the only thing. Yeah, you've got promises to pray, mom and dad. Promises given to you by your covenant-keeping God. Steve Mathis in our Wednesday night class on the parables, he just did an excellent job of teaching on the parable of the persistent widow. Okay? who kept knocking and 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 knocking until her neighbor opened the door. And there are times and seasons when prayer is very much like that. We are quick to give up if the door doesn't open in a reasonable amount of time. Because we've been trained sometimes to excuse spiritual impatience, right? We even have the audacity sometimes to call it faith. Oh, having faith means God is going to do this by 2 o'clock tomorrow. And because I declared it, that means I get to boss God around. Are you actually insane? Are you actually insane? What if having faith means praying until that door opens and not quitting before? One thing... I actually never noticed until, until Steve taught on this parable, just one thing I'd never noticed about the parable, where it occurs in the Gospel of Luke, is it shows up right next to where Jesus talks about asking and seeking and knocking. Right? How, how, how fitting is that? So sometimes, here, here's what I mean, sometimes prayer is easy. Right? It's like you ask for something, and then relatively soon after that, you get a substantive answer. I mean, it's like, Boom. That happened the other day when I was talking with uh, uh, Miss Phyllis Orr. It was, it was great. I, I don't get to tell these stories often, but, but uh, you know, I was sitting at her home, and you all remember that's when her, her, her power was out, and I said, how can I pray? And, and she said, well, pray the uh, electrician shows up. I said, okay. So we prayed the electrician would show up. I got in my car. I'm not out of the driveway yet, and the electrician's pulling in. I said, you're about to make me look so good, <laughs> right? And sometimes it, it works out that easy. And I'm going to offer to you that's asking, right? Ask and you will receive. It's like a kid standing right next to dad. Just looks up. Can I have that? Yes. Other times, seek. Where, where's, where's dad gone? I don't know where he is. I have to go find him. Those are times they call for seeking. And then other times, it's like, is my father behind some kind of a door? I, I, can't, I can't get to him. And so you keep on knocking until the door is opened. And sometimes, I, sometimes I'm afraid that some of our discipleship practices have only taught us how to do the first one, to ask when he's, when he's right here, yeah? And not how to knock. Not how to seek, how to, not, not how to seek and, and then find, not how to knock and keep on knocking. So what's the whole point of this? The whole point of this, I'm going to start to wrap this up, and you, again, you might have the sense, you, Brian, you didn't really talk to me. I know. I know. I, I, didn't, I didn't hit every target I wanted to. The, the whole point of the sermon is that we are completely dependent on Jesus Christ for all of our help in this, in, in parenting and in everything else, dear saints. Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and death. 
And he is the great builder, the great architect. And he is the one making dead rocks into living stones. That's the language Peter uses. Dead rocks into living stones. You know what he does with living stones? He builds his church. We are laborers, and so yeah, we work hard, but you know the beginning and the middle and the end of all of our labors. We trust God. To quote Oliver Cromwell, who once told his soldiers, trust God and keep your powder dry. (laughs) All right? Trust God and keep your powder dry. Trust God and live with wisdom. And remember that Jesus Christ is building his church out of living stones that he's made alive. That is what our Lord Jesus does. That is the only hope that you have for your salvation and the salvation of your children is that Jesus Christ takes stones, takes rocks and makes them alive. And remember that he's building his church. This is such a glorious picture of of, of the church that Jesus is building, right? Living stones, so you have each individual person has to be a stone in the house God is building. Each individual has to profess faith and follow Jesus. But you aren't made into a living stone just to sit in a quarry all day. You are part of the house, part of the fellowship, part of the church that God is building. And you matter. And one of, the most, one, of the, one of the things that most significantly defines this house of living stones, you know what we all have in common? You know what we all have in common, moms and dads and kids, is that our sins are forgiven. And if you hear nothing else today, then hear that. Beloved, your sins are forgiven. This is where you have to bank your hope. Otherwise, despair will destroy you. It's the most fundamental thing that we have to keep coming back to again and again and again. The one who sharpens young arrows, Jesus Christ is the one who's doing it. He is also the one who took the arrow of God's justice for you. And we are a people whose sins are forgiven. This gives us great hope. It gives us great courage. Great hope that the God who forgives is also transforming us and can call our prodigal children back from the wilderness. He can do it. And great courage, oh, great courage, that we can confess our sins. That's where we actually begin to find freedom and hope when we start confessing sin. And unless Christ builds the house, forget about it. Unless Christ and what he's given is where we're going. His work, His mission, His objective, unless Christ and His law and gospel animate us, unless Christ is the one guarding, purifying, refining His church, it'll collapse. It'll collapse. It'll run out of money. Unless Christ is the one guarding our homes, guarding our churches and our nation, it's all going to be on sand. So it is with all of our heritage and rewards, right? Unless Christ is guarding them, unless Christ is building them. And so look to Him. Look to Him for what you need this morning. Perhaps it is that you're coming in repentance. Then to you, I would say, hear loudly and clearly the forgiveness of your sins and rest in that. Perhaps it is you, you know that, that, that before you is is needing to mend 
some relationship, perhaps between husband and wife. Well, don't, don't wait to do that. And if, if you need a third party, oh, if only God had given you elders. And so it is that God puts this vision before us of one of the ways that he builds his church. One of the ways that he puts arrows into the hearts of the kingdom of darkness. And maybe, maybe, this wasn't for you in the sense of this morning. You're like, oh, okay, I'm here sharpening young arrows. Got it, the sermon's for me. And if that's not you, if you're in a different season of life, then my prayer and hope for you is you saw the need to rightly order priorities and just say, oh, this is what God calls good. This is what God calls good. So this is where we want to invest our resources and our joy and our good work and our prayers. For His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.